The Future by Stefan Molyneux Chapter 29 Roman refused to be delivered back to his tribe on a sky bus like a package. So he and David disembarked a short distance away and covered the remaining distance on foot. A footlesser, a giant crate that transported itself, though not on feet, followed them at a medium distance. As they strode under the sliding shadow branches of the trees, David cast occasional glances at Roman's set face. The old warrior was busy concocting some kind of story to explain the new developments. David could understand that, see that clearly, but he gave Roman his space, not wanting to interfere in whatever face-saving narrative the older man was creating. "'You wouldn't let me scan for them,' said David eventually. "'How do you know where the tribe is?' Roman grunted. "'Our movements are not random.' He was not disposed to say anything more, so the pair walked in silence, David behind Roman, who had a surer sense of where the firm footfalls were. "'I'm sorry you wouldn't take any of our parenting consultants,' said David. "'We'll figure it out.' After a while, they climbed a small, mossy hill and stared down into a wide, shallow depression full of cherry trees, tangled undergrowth, and darting birds. Roman said, It's an owl crater. From the cataclysms, murmured David. We have a story in our clan that we were first kicked out of hell, and then we were kicked out of heaven. Again, he refused to elaborate. After a minute or two, Roman moved suddenly, stepping down the mossy rocks into the depression below. The members of the clan were lying in the shade of the cherry trees, escaping the stealthy rise of the noonday heat. Children played a game of catching petals as they fell. David was reminded how little work people did in the distant past, and in the present, too. In most of ancient Europe, serfs worked only twenty hours or so a week, and over the winter months families mostly huddled under blankets, telling stories and conserving heat. Ancient Spain had five months of holidays a year. The truly manic and, frankly, unsustainable workaholism really took root from the 19th to the 21st centuries. Early on, it was because the Industrial Revolution was building capital from nothing. Later on, it was because taxes were so high that everyone had to work insane hours just to keep up. A few young males jumped to their feet a short distance apart as Roman approached and thumped their right hands against their chests. They greeted Roman using a word that David did not understand. He returned their greeting, thumping his own chest. Word quickly spread, and Roman's two sons came and knelt before him. He touched their foreheads in a strangely tender gesture. They stood and hugged him, joined in a moment by his wife. David stood awkwardly as the tribe hugged and chatted. Apparently there was a lot to catch up on. Births, great hunts, two deaths, one natural, and three new beards. From what David could hear, Roman evaded any detailed examination of his time in the sieve. Vague replies 
floated past faces eager to tell their own stories. The leader is gone, thought David, and the people just organized themselves. Eventually, Roman disengaged from the crowd and leapt nimbly onto a tree stump, always proud of his physical strength and dexterity. His face shone with what looked like genuine enthusiasm, and David noticed how much of tribal leadership is theater. Comrades, cried Roman, I bring knowledge and new rules to us. This man here, David, is a ruler in his own tribe, although he would not call himself that, and we have returned with some new ideas. I'm always thinking of what is best for all of us, best for the tribe, and David and I have come to an agreement, an understanding. As you know, in every negotiation, no one gets exactly what they want, but you find some way to meet in the middle. This is the middle. I agree with some of it. I don't agree with all of it. But this is what we have decided. He took a deep breath, gesturing at the falling petals and darting blackbirds. We know that nature is harsh, unforgiving. Mistakes, she punishes them with maiming or death. We have always respected that and raised our children to respect nature, to have discipline, lose their fear of pain, embrace hardship and survive. What they call the sieve, short for the civilization, a prideful word as if there were only one, has taken a different approach. They keep nature at a distance. They keep their feet on the neck of nature. They seem to dominate her completely. And they're doing well in their way. Again, I don't agree with everything that they do and every outcome they have embraced, but my visit to their world has given me the idea that David could see Roman struggling mightily with his speech and almost expected the older man to call him in to finish the thoughts. But he cleared his throat and continued. As you know, this entire affair began because of my son and David's daughter. She is right. Roman's voice cracked slightly. They, They call it peaceful parenting. And I have called it weakness and spoiling and coddling, but... And it took me a while to understand, so I have to sprint through what you are learning. I hope you will continue to trust me, as as you always have. He cleared his throat again. I first thought, when I looked at their buildings and machines and ease, that they didn't have to discipline their children because they had mastered nature so completely. I don't know if mastering nature so greatly comes with risk, but they have done it for a long time, and nothing really bad seems to be occurring or coming. So I guess at some point, imagining disaster just becomes a kind of curse we are putting on us for reasons of... David scanned the men, women and children in a semicircle around Roman. Although a dispassionate observer might accuse Roman of rambling... Watching a leader think in real time was fascinating to them, as it would be to anyone. So I thought they were soft on their kids, because they had conquered nature and turned their machines into slaves. Or not slaves, but 
workers, I guess. But David tells me that is not the case. They have not achieved such control and ease. He shook his head rapidly. They are not soft on their kids because they have conquered nature. They have conquered nature because they were soft on their kids. Or not soft, but he grimaced. Oh, I hate to say reasonable because there is reason in what we do as well. Strong reason. But they do not punish their children. And so nature or, or, or the cycle of history does not punish them. The last four words sank deep into the listening tribe. There was a silence and concentration in the air, as there always is when an essential truth is circled and approached. David wanted to say, it's not about controlling nature, but held his tongue. Roman needed to be in charge here. Now, I have this rule, the non-aggression principle which is you can't start the use of force against others, even if you think that will help your children in the future, as we do. Hitting children, punishing children, yelling, harsh words even, these are forbidden in the sieve. David's eyes narrowed at the mistake. They are forbidden universally, according to morality, to universally preferable behavior, not just in the sieve as a kind of cultural or local preference. <laughs> he wanted to leap up and proclaim the truth, but once more bit his tongue. And the funny thought passed through his mind that he was initiating force against himself. Roman continued. Now, the people in the sieve, they hold this to be a universal value, a global truth, so to speak. Though I imagine it is true on other worlds as well. Roman smiled painfully. And I owe this to be true here, in this tribe, in our world. Roman's wife scowled. Why? Words? He looked at her expectantly. She continued. Even if we accept the rules they have for their own children, I don't get why harsh words are the same as spanking I thought they were all about free speech. Roman shrugged, turning to David. David stood up and said, Hi, hello, good morning. Great question. We have machines to measure how a child's brain develops. Harsh words have a measurable negative effect on a developing brain. The moral rules that govern parents and children are different from those governing adults. Like... I don't have an obligation to feed every child in the world. But if I'm raising my child, I'm obligated to feed that child because by keeping him at home, I'm preventing other people from feeding him. What the hell does that have to do with free speech? Demanded Roman's wife, her lips taut with tension. You're free to swear at me, replied David, because I'm not obligated to listen. I can leave at any time. And because my brain is already fully developed. You are free not to feed me as well because... I'm an adult, so I can get food anywhere, and my body is already fully developed. If I was your child, you would not be free to starve me because my body is developing, and you are my sole source of food. In the same way, you are not free to verbally abuse your child who is in an unchosen relationship with you. You chose to have a child. Your child did not choose you as a parent, 
and is not free to leave. Children are like prisoners of nature, which means that the very highest moral standards apply to parents. We also have very strong rules against what is called defamation, destroying people's reputations by lying about them. And a parent who verbally abuses a child is defaming that child by calling him stupid or or lazy or clumsy or worse. It harms the child's view of himself, and it is false. Roman's wife squared her hips belligerently. Are you saying that there are no stupid or lazy children? Roman's sons took a step back away from their mother. David pursed his lips. When you hunt and you shoot an arrow, and the arrow misses, is it the fault of the arrow? She did not answer. Is it the fault of the bow, perhaps, or the deer you are shooting at? Silence. What about your fingers? Are they to blame? Should they be punished? Angry silence. David could not resist. He turned to Roman. Do you see what I mean when I say that raising children harshly does not make them stronger? You see, she will not even respond to my questions. Roman scowled. They are stupid questions. And I'm going to say that because you are not my child. There was a murmur of tense laughter around the half circle. David said, If your child is stupid, then either you have taught him badly or he has a physical problem with his brain. If you've taught him badly, then you're like a silly hunter blaming the arrow for missing. If his brain is physically damaged, then you are insulting him for something beyond his control. The word stupid implies a misuse of the brain. We don't call dogs stupid because they can't read or write. If your brain is physically damaged, you cannot be insulted for its deficiencies. That would be like calling a man with no legs lazy because he does not walk, or a very old man lazy because he does not run. Roman smiled scantily. Oh, they are tricky, these wordsmiths from the sieve. David noticed that all the children of the tribe were leaning forward. Roman said, Oh, I had these debates, and more, and more, and more, and more, when I was in the sieve. And to return, and for, for us to live as we see fit, here in the wilderness, we, we have agreed to, 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 to what? asked his wife scornfully. What have you agreed to on our behalf? It's a, a very strange tale, so it's probably better to, to show than to say, replied Roman slowly. He turned to David, who waved his hand in the air. A giant red container floated nimbly over the tangled trees at the edge of the ancient crater. The tribe cried out, dove into battle positions and readied their weapons. Roman cried out, Be at peace! It's not dangerous! Yet, said David silently. Roman added, This might be a bit surprising. Be at peace! The container settled on the ground, crushing some berry bushes and scattering a grey rabbit, and opened its lid. Two dozen pink Babies floated up in the silent air, smiling radiantly. There were 
cries and screams from the assembled tribespeople, although a few of the girls looked at the floating babies with rapt attention. Don't shoot, called Roman, but it was too late. Two arrows flew towards the floating babies and then froze in midair and snapped in two. As one, the floating babies drew their own bows and readied their own crackling arrows. David said, these are called angels. They are here to protect your children. They will not harm you in return as yet, but you cannot attack them. One mother grabbed her two young children and started dragging them away from the clearing. They cried out in fear and surprise. Immediately, an angel flew directly above her. Release your hold on the children. It instructed in its strange, deep voice. David suddenly realized that this was all moving too fast. But then, at the same time, he also thought, meh, might as well get it over with as quickly as possible. The mother turned and spat at the angel. It hovered above her and repeated its instruction. The children, quite young, burst into tears. She turned to Roman, her eyes wide, angry, helpless. He said, let them go. Clearly, against her will, she slowly let go of her children. Thank you, said the angel politely. Her children burrowed into her rough skirt, clutching at her hips. The angel hung over them in silence. Elsewhere there were cries and screams, people running back and forth. One father pulled his children into a rough, stained teepee. Immediately an angel flew to the opening. Screaming, the man tried to push the floating baby away, but it dodged his hands. Using laced ties, the man worked to close the opening of the teepee. I cannot see the children, said the angel impassively. Please do not hide the children from me. As the confrontation materialized, people stopped their frantic movement and turned to look at the teepee. The man screamed vile epithets at the angel and continued to lace up the opening with his shaking hands. I cannot see the children, repeated the angel. Please allow me to see the children, and please do not curse in front of the children. The man cursed again and finally finished lacing up the opening. Everyone watched in wonder as the baby's blue eyes glowed for a moment, and with a brief round flash of red light, the animal hide suddenly showed a bright hole, just wider than the angel. The angel moved through the hole into the teepee. The man screamed again, and his fingers appeared under the teepee. Joking upwards, he ripped the side of the teepee from the ground, and it began to collapse behind him. There was a strangely comical moment while the angel, hidden from view by the animal hide, held the teepee aloft. Then there was another flash of light, another hole, and the angel once more hung over the man who huddled with his children, his face white. Thank you for letting me see the children again, said the angel. The man glared up hatred in his dark eyes. His hands clenched. Everyone could see that he was preparing to leap. Don't do it, screamed Roman. Calm down, everyone. Be at peace. Roman's wife strode up to him and shook his shoulders. You unbelievable idiot! What are you bringing these demon babies here for? Oh, great, here it comes! An angel baby zoomed over her through a blossoming cherry tree, ripping pink petals in its wake. Its smile had vanished. Please do not attack the man. This is your final warning. She drew her head back scornfully. She smiled then reached forward to hug Roman, keeping her eye on the floating infant. He flinched, but embraced her back. There was a sudden movement underneath her voluminous skirts, a sudden shift. 
Roman stifled a groan. There was a raised bow, a sudden flash, and Roman's wife went staggering backwards, her hair smoking slightly. Please do not strike the man in his genitals, said the angel, lowering its bow. With a blur of instinct, Roman turned to the angel and drew his fist back. The angel raised its bow again. Do not strike me. Everyone stopped moving at this point, staring at the scene. The angel with its raised bow and blue crackling arrow. And the primitive hunter, his fist raised against the angel, the protector of the helpless. Against morality itself. Against any limit on his instinct for violence. The baby broke into a disarming smile. A woman's voice came out of its tiny pink mouth. Please lower your fist, friend. Roman's wife turned to David and screamed, Turn them the hell off! David shook his head. I cannot turn them off. And wouldn't even if I could. For me, for us, it would be like turning off gravity. A grim sense of helplessness and terror swept across the tribe, scattered in the crater of an ancient war. All the brutalities and beatings and sarcasm and insults that had accumulated hatred and damage within them. All the little violations that had led to the global cataclysms all seemed arrested in the tangled depression left by a long-vanished bomb. And, and the silver line between the hands raised against the children and the bombs dropped on the adults began to suddenly stretch tight and taut in the minds of everyone. Roman, his wife, the man with his children, David, the tribe. And the coming of the angels that actually protected people, children in the here and now, seemed to summon all the devils that most needed to be banished. Chapter 30 David had to flee for his safety. Not his own, because the angels would have protected him, but because the ferocity of the tribal adults was so intense that he was concerned that they would be shocked within an inch of their lives if he stayed. He sat in the sky taxi, alone in the white pews, heading back to the sieve, his heart pounding so hard in his chest that it felt like a boxer trying to punch his way out of a curved white cage. It was a brush with the ancient world, the world before the sieve. And although he had read and studied history for decades, being dropped into the bubbling cauldron of primitive violence deeply shocked his system. He didn't know how to frame it in his own mind. His relationship with his daughter was so peaceful and enjoyable that it seemed, or was, incomprehensible to him that parents would voluntarily choose to assault their own children for the voodoo crime of disobedience. David loved his wife. It was similarly incomprehensible to him that husbands would choose to assault their wives, the supposed loves of their lives, for any reason at all. Don't they know that the dark joy of immediate triumph comes at the expense of all future love? 
Don't they know that they are shredding their own hearts on the altar of vanity and victory? It is always the way when looking back into the past. Even when the past erupts into the present and tries to claw you back. The decisions of the self-destructive are incomprehensible to even basic morality. To trade future comfort, security, support, and love for the sake of ape-like dominance in the here and now is so fundamentally irrational that it is hard not to view such impulses as the result of foundational brain damage, a form of self-mutilation designed to appease the dark gods of personal prehistory. David had once read the diary of a woman from centuries past who did little but insult the man she claimed to love and only accepted negotiations in the form of abject and groveling apologies and submission. She triumphed in this, genuinely believing that she was all-wise, all-knowing, and that her boyfriend, and later, at least for a few short months, fiancé, was a kind of idiot puppy who needed to be trained with the stern whips of sexuality and scorn. She was so desperately insecure that she hid advertisements that came in the mail depicting attractive women. She fueled her own vanity with dreams of a career in the arts, but only used these fantasies to escape having to make any real decisions in her life. Her boyfriend became more and more successful, which made her more and more bitter and neurotic. She was greedy for his income, but terrified of his growing confidence, and alternated between praising his achievements and cutting down his pride. She was able to regard and review her own darker impulses, but helpless to change them. Reading her diary was like watching someone trapped on a conveyor belt being fed into a grinding machine that took months to crush her into a flat puddle of pure regret. When he brought her to social functions, she remained paralyzed with fear and projected all her insecurities onto his imaginary social gaffes, grinding down his security on the drive home, making up all sorts of fantastical offenses she perceived him creating. She became exhausting. By her own admission, she was tired of herself. But she had no ability, it seemed, to be able to pull the reins back on the horses dragging her to her doom. She whipped them, perhaps just to get it over with. It didn't take very long for her fiancé to realize that she was not a superior being, handing down hard-earned approval to his inferior and awkward self. Instead, she was a shaming spiral neurotic, pushing herself into a field she had no intentions of mastering because of vanity-laced girl-power propaganda. Inevitably, he left her. And she contacted him years later over some inconsequential paperwork when she was paralyzed and he was a great success. She complained of feeling lonely, hoping to trigger his white knight responses, and he merely replied, You are alone with 
being right. <sighs> Some sentences are like an axe that descends on the stump of our lives, splitting it in two, sending the shattered sides spiraling in opposite directions. This sentence did it for her. She hung up in a panic and was never the same afterwards. So much of life, of society, of culture and the arts is designed to keep the shortest, shattering sentences out of our own ears. She was never the same. She followed his subsequent successful marriage, obsessively raging that his new wife had inherited the improved man that she, his former girlfriend, had created out of the unproven clay of his broken self. Thus, might you dig for weeks? Then take a short break and find someone walking away with a diamond you had almost unearthed. It was impossible for her not to feel stolen from that another woman had inherited all of her hard work and reforming strictness. David read her diary and, as anyone would when confronted with the intimate and unspoken thoughts of those long dead, wondered what had become of the woman. Did she ever find wisdom? It seemed impossible. David knew enough about human nature to know that the first 24 hours after a significant moral mistake are crucial. If she justified her own errors, and he could see it page after page, word after word, in fact, the entire diary seemed to serve that purpose, then not only would she not learn she would never be able to learn. She was writing a fiction about her virtue and moving into the sky castle of her vanity, away from everyone. What we justify, we repeat. The justification and the repetition are one and the same. Excuses are promises of repetition. It was so hard for David to understand this perspective in history because the sieve was founded on the repudiation of vanity. Vanity demands that we never admit fault, that we become infallible gods in the fantastical pantheon of our own professions. But all foundational societal progress results from the most elemental self-criticism of all, the fundamental question, am I wrong? Morally, am I evil? A person, a culture that can never ask that question must project all its immorality onto those who deviate from vanity. Vanity requires the most fundamental unoriginality regarding empirical information. You can only ever believe what serves your happiness, your relief in the moment. You must never compare your resulting actions to universal standards because your self-hyped vanity will evaporate under the infinite constellations of absolute morality. This long-dead woman had obviously created her sense of self on the wobbly altar of superiority, which condemned her to constantly denigrate those around her. For her, there was no height 
without depth. There was no ceremony of the self without the sweaty, dug graves of others. She sailed through her life, through her squandered ambitions, her fading fertility, her aging and souring face, utterly convinced of the rightness of her position and the wrongness of the world that failed to support her vanity. She felt herself to be right. And the days and years that she used to reinforce her justifications were like the days and years that pass after a person goes missing. The first hours, the first day or two, are the most crucial. The odds of finding a person alive after a decade are virtually zero. In the same way, the odds of foundational self-criticism emerging after decades of self-justification and blame are also virtually zero. It happens, just as you can jump out of a plane from a great height and somehow land without injury, but it's not something you should ever count on. And her demands grew. Every man she met was required to reinforce her justifications, to join her in burning the endless effigies of people long gone from her life. Wasn't he so terrible? Aren't I right? Don't you agree? I wasn't to blame. He did me wrong. These demands to be initiated into the inner cult of her vanity were endless and drove everyone of any quality out of her life. And then... And then the cataclysms began more rapidly than anyone outside of philosophers imagined. And her own mortality was suddenly served up to her. And the self-nagging of endlessly propping up her own imagined virtues suddenly collapsed. And she was faced with real and present danger of hunger and the hunt for food and the rape of the roaming. And her anxiety overwhelmed her. And she ran to men for protection. Men who abused her, but she could no longer afford to put them down because she needed them. And her random scribblings grew more and more disjointed and desperate. Her last entry was a frantic plan to escape from the guarded settlement that was her sanctuary and her prison because she had been designated a useless eater due to her age and infertility. Nothing came into her mind or her writing of any use or depth or value whatsoever. (sighs) The fact that she had milked her looks, avoided motherhood, insulted good men for failing to support her fantasies, that she was a former feminist who had built a certain road to her end role as a bitter, scorned and rejected concubine, that she could no longer manipulate resources out of the desperate and gullible that all of her power had faded into nothing. And she had invested nothing into her relationships. She had no nieces or cousins who loved her, no aunts or uncles grateful for her gentle ministrations of their aging illnesses. She had consumed others, satisfying only their lust and thirst for subjugation. She had no reciprocity in her relationships. She gave away only what she had not earned, her beauty, And she generated no new values or value. 
and she busily remonstrated with the gods of her own fate that she could no longer vote her way out of her dangerous and decaying subjugation. The true nature of men has been laid bare, she scribbled in her last entry, heading out to death, as surely as she had lived, without a glimmer of insight into her own role in creating the world she now fled. Really, thought David, reading her last words with a sinking heart. What could she possibly say at this point? I created a world of brutality by greedily inflicting falsehoods on the insecure? I used others, now I am wretched that I am being used? When the central principle of people's lives manifests around them, when they're living off, that principle creates the monsters that enslave them. Their vanity demands that they take no responsibility for the world they made. And so, the woman, now 50, disappeared into the night, into the wilderness, leaving her diary behind, probably as a testament she imagined would generate endless pity for her in the future. Instead of the sorrow and horror that David felt, his mind was tempted to follow her into the wilderness, to wonder what happened to her, a used-up woman who had used others up. But he had to draw a stern line around his own wandering imagination. We must learn from history, not follow fools into their own graves. On reading the diary found on a burnt scrap of hard drive after the cataclysms, David felt the kind of chill that he supposed former readers of ancient history had experienced when reading about the tortures and mutilations committed by ancient tribes against themselves and their children. The ancient South American culture of the Aztecs believed that the tears of children would produce the abundant rains necessary for their crops, so priests would physically torture the children to collect their tears before slaughtering them. Their parents would sing and applaud the sacrifice. Cannibalism. The murder of infants and children. Rape was a weapon of war. The habit of some ancient tribes to carve a hole through the base of the penis of a boy going through puberty. These prehistoric horrors sent ice through the veins of all researchers with a shred of conscience. What David read about in the decades before the cataclysms was a form of spiritual self-mutilation. The concept of sin had been cast aside, and all the accumulated and concentrated wisdom of self-broken people casting their bitter knowledge back in time like black pearls of revulsion and repulsion, the seven deadly sins, the ape categories of self-destructive behaviors, the mere mammals versus the sublime angels, the rocket of escape from the greedy meat pockets of mere flesh, propelling the blind photocopying of genetics up to the superhuman sky castles of universal abstractions, the acceleration into the airless sky that felt like dying. All of this was lost 
And no one thought for a second about why sin existed, why the punishments of hell and the rewards of heaven had to be so extravagant, how much the greedy apes of our meaty natures scrabbled in the ground of fighting and sex and food and laziness, terrified of losing their fur, their certainty in the pursuit of their lusts, so afraid of anything greater than muscle and semen, so that all abstractions, moral abstractions in particular, hunted them like ghosts as they raced through the jungles, through the cities, and eventually through the sewers hiding from the radiation, chased and hunted by their own superhuman potential, which nagged and bullied and bribed and humiliated them as they squatted over the prey of their own higher selves. They were hunted because they had hunted. They refused to prey, and so became prey. The prey of ignorance and greed and the mad, manic desire of all flesh to satisfy itself in the moment and to hell, literally to hell, with the true and the beautiful and the good. Paints were snatched to cover the face of the bright rainbows of war. To recreate a sunset on the wall of the cave was incomprehensible. Women prettied themselves in order to be assaulted. Men grew muscles in order to strut and stride. Language was used to chisel guilt and resources from the morally sensitive. Morality was destroyed in order to be replaced by the hysterical attacks of a mob. Conscience, the thumbprint of divine universals on the mind muscles of the moment, was destroyed, replaced by the lust for destruction common to all who have surrendered their common humanity for the sake of the self-shredding pleasure of approval. Parents, were easily taught to abandon their children to the machine monsters of state indoctrination. Mothers fled the dark warmth of the nurturing crebs to blink and shrivel under wage-slave fluorescent lights, handing over their screaming babies to scornful, indifferent and underpaid foreigners. The basics of science cracked and shattered. Taken over by the state, science was turned into a weapon against the common sense of the tax cattle. Science became a giant club to destroy and deplatform anyone skeptical of the objectivity of vacant bureaucrats in white coats sucking the teat of billions of dollars of made-up money. History was a madhouse that only seemed normal to those incarcerated by the accidents of time. Everyone looked back to prior ages with the delicate revulsion of horror and then turned their gazes to their own creeping insanities with the complacency of habitual normalcy. All who came before us were mad and evil in equal measures. But my world is the end of history, the sane and serene harbor that all the broken ships of the past have taken refuge in.
It's David rocketed away from the warring tribe. He wept. He wept at the arcs of light that flashed through the forest as the angels threw their electric shields over the futures of the children. He wept at the madness of the parents, destabilized to the point of self-dissolution at the absolute lightning protection of their victims. Morality finally as a true bolt out of the blue. He wept with relief that the madness of history had finally come to a close with the sieve. He wept with relief that he had never had to weigh his future desire for children with the fear that the growing madness of the world would swallow them whole. He wept at his time-window view of cultures lost in history, arising in the present only as the most terrible reminder of everything humanity had escaped. He wept for the thousand generations of parents who unknowingly created predatory rulers by preying on their own children. But mostly, he wept because he was free to escape the madhouse, the violence and evil of the past, by flying through the brisk air back to the sieve, while the children behind and below him snarled and dodged and rebelled and taunted, protected at last by the electric arms of the flying angels. <laughs>